Hi, and welcome to The Big Schmear, the podcast about Jewish food, its history and culture, and everything in between. I'm in New York City at a favorite studio of mine with lots of radio producing memories here. And today, I'm looking forward to a conversation with my guest, Joanne Oppenheim, author of the new children's book called The Knish Wars. So you might be thinking, hmm, Knishes, okay, but a children's book author on The Big Schmear? What I can say to that is The Big Schmear is all about Jewish food, so why not talk with an author about how a Knish became the subject of a children's book? And before you do much more thinking about how all this is going to work, I'd like to properly introduce the author so we can get right into the conversation. Joanne Oppenheim grew up in Monticello, New York. She's been a teacher and editor at Bank Street College of Education's publication department, and she's written more than 50 books for and about children. Her byline has appeared in parenting magazines such as Working Mother, Parents, Parenting, and she has appeared as a toy and children's book reviewer on Good Morning America and CBS This Morning. With her daughter Stephanie Oppenheim, she is a parenting contributor on NBC's Today Show. She lives in New York City, not far from Rivington Street, where a century ago her great-grandfather had a pushcart and no doubt ate knishes. Her newest book, The Knish War on Rivington Street, is based on a true event that happened in 1916. Hi, Joanne, and welcome to The Big Schmear. It's wonderful to meet you, and it's great fun to have you here. Hello. It's my pleasure to be here. I thought we should talk a bit about exactly what a knish is before we jump into talking about your book. To quote Gil Marks, a knish is a filled pastry, either baked or fried, probably from Ukraine. I've seen knish filled with spinach, kasha, meat, but clearly the most common and the most popular is a filling of potato and onion. Can you give us a little knish history? Well, they were wonderful street food, very filling, very inexpensive. They could be carried to work. They could be eaten in a shop. You didn't have to heat them. They were filling, and they were five cents or less after the war began. Right, <laughs> right. I wonder, do you have any, while you were doing all your research, do you have any interesting Kanish stories or research stories about finding out? Were there surprises about doing your research on this? Oh, it was one surprise after another. <laughs> and uh, one of the things I found out is that Max Green, one of the one of the Knishery owners in the original Knish War, claimed to be the originator of Knishes, which of course was not true. Knishes began long before in the old country. Mm -hmm. They were uh, peasant food. They were they were popular food even there. And in fact, just a few blocks away from Rivington Street, Yona Schimmel had already begun selling knishes in 1910. And this story happens in 1916. I don't know what year Max Green really started. I do know when he left uh, the knish business because, or at least he moved his knish business because when I went to the site on Rivington Street, I discovered that the building Max Green had been in was at one time, it was it, it, at this moment, it's a construction site 
for multi-million dollar co-op apartments. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Which is sort of funny when you think about the price war for knishes that happened there. But in 1925, that building became one of four buildings that became the Streit's Matzah Factory. Oh, my gosh. And it wasn't until last year that it went down, that that went down, and these co-ops are going up. So the site of the Knish War has a real food history. I feel good about that. Yeah, it does. And the the building across the street, the place that I call Tish's Knishes. In your book. In my book. But, of course, it was really owned by someone named M. London. Uh, I don't know what his name is. I called him Morris while I was working on the book, but... In any case, that building is still there, and that building is phenomenal, and it, it still has a restaurant in it, huh. a storefront with a restaurant called Delilah's that I suppose is going to have limousines in front of it in a few years when the, the co-ops across the street are built. No, <laughs> no doubt. Whoa. So tell me, um, what, what prompted you to write this book in the first place? Well, it was accidental. I was on the site of the Brooklyn Historical Society looking up something that I wanted to research. And while I was there, I saw the program notes for a program by Laura Silver, who was doing a history of the Knish. And I hadn't, it it struck me as funny, the Knish lady was going to have a talk, and they were going to have Knishes, so... How can you lose? Right, I thought (laughs) this would be worth going to. And I did go to the program, and Laura mentioned an article in the archives of the New York Times from January of 1916. I'm not sure she gave all that was that information, but as soon as I got home, she spoke about a Knish war on Rivington Street, and that struck me as, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then when I read the article itself, everything in the storybook, almost everything in the storybook, came directly out of that article. The article just told this hysterically funny story about how they had their competition, how, how um, one, one of the stores was there, and then another opened, and a big sign went up. It was two stories high, and done in Yiddish in red and black letters, selling the, the United Knish Factory And instead of five cents, the knishes went down to four cents. And before you know it, they went down to three cents. And then after that, they found other ways to compete by bringing musicians in and having coupons and having contests. One of the things didn't get into the book that's pretty funny. Um, There wasn't room for everything that that happened in the book. We only have 16 spreads in a picture book. But um, they actually had a knish eating contest. And the man that won the contest ate 20 pie-sized knishes. Oh, my God. And he had to be carried home. That's <laughs> too funny. Right. But uh, they gave away coupons. They had um, they had an oompa-pa band. So as soon as one person did one thing, if Max did something, Mr. Tish did something to outshine <laughs> him. And so... He, one had an umpapa band, the other brought in an all-female orchestra. They, <laughs> of course, I had to add some things, too, to sure, the book. Sure, of course. Because you can't just use what comes out of a paper. You really have to be a little creative. Oh, yeah, of course. Right. So um, the contest that, one of the debates that is ongoing, I think, is about whether, which is best, a fried knish 
right. or a baked knish. And I have my own preferences, but I decided that would make another element to the book that mm -hmm. would be fun. And uh, so that I added. Also, the newspaper stories. It wasn't just the Times. There were other newspapers that had stories about it. They... Uh, they didn't have a solution for how it ended. They only reported that it was ongoing, but they never there was never a follow-up story of how oh, no. it got settled. So I had to invent an ending. I thought I thought the the ending that you invented was excellent, my my own opinion. But I I, I was very <laughs> pleased with the ending. I thought it was good. All right. Well we we don't have to give a spoiler alert. I think we can say <laughs> that I brought in the mayor. Uh, first I brought in the Keystone the Keystone's cops kind of image. And then I brought in the uh, the mayor. And the mayor said something that I really wanted to say in this book, because this is a book for children. And it isn't just about the price war. I really wanted to talk about the idea that there doesn't need to be one best thing. There can be more than one. Children often want to be the best. They want the fastest. They want the newest. The, it's all superlatives. And one of the big hard things to learn in life is that it doesn't have to be that way. There can be more than one good thing. So I would say um, it's all right that you might prefer fried knishes and I might prefer baked, but um, that's the big, the big underlying message that I think. And, of course, you don't want to hit kids on the head with a message, but on the other hand, the book has to say something. Right. right. And speaking of that, I was really impressed that you actually put together a classroom guide for teachers about the book. And I can't remember where I found that. Did I find right. it? It's on my site. Okay. And it's also on the publisher's site. On uh, I have a, a website, joanneoppenheim.com, and a lot of Knish stories there as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally recommend checking out the classroom guide because even if you're not a teacher and you're a parent, there's some really great talking opportunities while you're, you know, after you're reading the book and things for your kids to think about, uh, in addition to having the great pleasure of making your own knishes. So. Ah, yes. Well, that's a funny story, too. Oh, let's hear that. Well, I thought, as I was doing the book, wouldn't it be nice to have recipes for making knishes in the back of the book? And I mentioned that to my editor, and she said, oh, yes. And then uh, we were all finished with the book, and everything was in place. And the next thing I knew, she said, but, but where is the recipe? Where are the recipes? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, uh, well, you, you're going to get those right. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how to make knishes. So she said, well, you're going to learn. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to read a lot, a lot of recipes. And then, then of course, I had to adapt it and make them my own. And then, of course, I couldn't hand that over without first trying them. <laughs> Absolutely. So it was beginner's luck. They turned out to be scrumptious. <laughs> Yay. But I, I'm never going to make them again. Oh, no. I'm sure it was beginner's luck. But we do have the recipes in the, in the book. And I think it's fun to cook with children after you, or to do some activity after you've read a book to extend the experience and Certainly, cooking with children is one of the great treats. It's it's an opportunity to to for them to feel that they've done something for the family that they can take pride in, 
and the experiences really can be a science experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a, there's a lot of math usually involved. Then there's the mashing, and then the best there's the tasting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, and, and I'll also post um, those two recipes on my website as well, so you'll be able to find, find those in a number of places. Um, so one of the things that I really loved about the book were the illustrations. I, I just thought they were really beautiful. They brought the essence of the time that the story takes place, but also in a way had a modern feel. And so I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about the process of um, how the illustrations get matched with the with the story, and um, and maybe this is it. Sounds like this was a kind of an unusual experience as well. It was unusual for me. I've written many many picture books. It's the first time that I actually got to work with the illustrator as it was happening. And furthermore, I never saw him face to face. I haven't met him in person because he was in England. He's never been to New York. He's never been to Rivington Street. He, in fact, has never eaten a knish. Oh, my. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he has a great sense of humor. He had a grasp of, of what it should look like. And the editors in Chicago at Albert Whitman also worked with him. And what he would do is he would do sketches, and then they would be sent to all of us, and there would be a place for us to comment on what was missing, what might need to be added, what might need to be sharpened. And then it would go through another set of designs. And so together, this was a cooperative venture. Of course, it was his hands that made those wonderful pictures. And he really did do a marvelous job, considering that it all happens in, in the same space. And yet there's such variety in what's going on in all those pictures. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but it is not usual for this to happen. Usually they keep the author and the artist in separate places. They want each of you to be to give them the creativity that that you bring to it, and then the editor makes the meld. But uh, it's <laughs> this was unusual. Huh. It worked out very well. <laughs> yeah, it worked out really well. Um... Nice to have the opportunity to have that other level of collaboration, I would think. Yes, yes. And with the editor as well. Uh, I, I didn't think that the original knishes that he drew looked like knishes. They looked more like apple turnovers to me. <laughs> <laughs> but we got them straightened out. Yeah, I think they, they look like knishes, I have <laughs> to say. Here's a question for you. I, I'm not so familiar, I'll be honest, I'm not so familiar with your other children's books. Has, have any of your other children's books had a Jewish theme? No, this is really the first, and it's odd because I've written Mexican folktales, I've written Italian folktales, adaptations of them. I've written two major books on the Japanese-American incarceration and uh, done all of the research for that. I've been working on a book about an American slave girl, so research is, comes naturally to me, and I have never before, I've always wanted to write a book that is about my own culture, but it, finding it was, was the mystery. Now, um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, think, I can think of several that I would like to do, and it just may be a new, new direction for me. Oh, that's really interesting. And w when you started out on the project... 
were you really aware that of all of those things that you had never done um, a theme that related to Jewishness in any way and that you were like forging new ground? Or did you not really think about that at all? You just were intrigued by the idea and moved ahead. You know, I have to say that my family has been teasing me for several years now and calling my Japanese-American friends my family <laughs> or my people. <laughs> and and uh, they have asked me on occasion, when am I going to get to it? But uh, I've just not ever been able to do it. I've just not been able to find a, the right story. And this story just presented itself, and it has a, such... Um, such emotional connections for me. My mother was born not far from Rivington Street on the Lower East Side. My great-grandfather had a pushcart on on the Lower East Side, and uh, he was one of those people who liked to study and, um, and kept the Sabbath and was really annoyed with his son, who was really orthodox by any comparison to the generations that followed. Um, So there was something very emotional about just having a book set in this, in this place. Yeah. And, and uh, I guess what I'll say just in my limited experience so far is that in doing this podcast is that food really is a connection for people on so many levels. It's a great way to bring people together, but it also, it just, it's like, um, it's like listening. It brings back memories right. in a very direct way, very personal way. And so I'm thinking, you know, you've eaten knishes, I'm sure, in your life, maybe not ones that you made. And then this connection to your grandfather, it's, it's, it's pretty right. interesting. Well, those, those are my mother's family. My father's father uh, never settled on the Lower East Side. He went immediately to Yonkers, New York, and then moved to the to Sullivan County. But uh, he was a baker, and when I w- he was a retired baker by the time I knew him. So that when I was asked, well, how did I get the voice for this? And I think the voice that I hear when I'm writing this book is his voice because he lived with us and he baked for us and he uh, he made noodles and, and crepla. I could never remember the word crepla. I used to say, please make me this. So I would pinch <laughs> my fingers and then he would know what I meant. And he would say, you can say it. <laughs> <laughs> so there are there were connections on both sides, yes. That's, that's really cool. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about how what the process was of selling this book. And I have a sense that it wasn't so easy. Well, I can tell you that when I started writing the book... I wrote the book in verse. As I have written many of my books for young children are written in verse. And I wrote the entire story in verse. And then I sent it out and got back a letter saying that as they were interested in the story, but there was no way they would publish the book in verse. And so I wrote it in prose. (laughs) And uh, then it, it didn't get accepted in prose either by the same editor, but at least I was on the right track. And one of the things I found was that it was very difficult to sell this book, uh, in part because it's a niche audience. Publishers are looking for big sales, like everybody in mm-hmm. business. You can't really condemn them for that. <laughs> but uh, the, there was a problem in finding a home for this. 
And uh, I sent it to one editor who said she could not take it. She loved it. And she called me six months later and said, have you sold it yet? And I said, no, I've put it away in a drawer. And she said, well, I think that you should send it to PJ Library. Do you know about PJ Library? And I said, no. <laughs> and she said, well, you send it to them because I think they're going to love this book and they will help you. They will help you find a publisher. And in indeed, that's exactly what happened. So it's been very gratifying to me that the book is now PJ Library, for those who don't know. Yeah, please tell people about that. It is a foundation uh, founded by a gentleman who in Boston, Mr. Greenspoon? Yes, Mr. Greenspoon. And uh, and his wife, I believe. And he was he's, he wanted children and families to have books with Jewish themes. And in fact, they weren't getting them because mainstream publishers will do a Hanukkah book or they'll do a... Uh, they've done a lot of Holocaust books. Uh, they have not done a lot of... Jewish stories, and he saw the the need, and so these books they have given away tens of thousands of books to Jewish families. All you have to do is sign up, and once a month you get a a, a book that's age appropriate. So my book has already gone out; it won't go out again. If it ever goes out again through the foundation, it will be four or five years from now, but not immediately. Uh, but the foundation is doing wonderful work, and I'm thrilled to, I'm really honored to have had the, the book distributed that way, so it it's reaching many more children than would otherwise ever have seen the book. Yeah, that's really fantastic. Um, and I forgot to ask you this. Can you tell me what the age uh, is for the prime age for reading your book? Well, it's, I would say, four to eight, but the sweet spot would be six, seven, mm -hmm. eight, because children of that age can understand what competition in business is about. You, the cooking part will be more fun with them. They're mm -hmm. readier for it. And the, the story itself is, is about two school-age boys, the children of these two men <laughs> and women. Uh, actually, you know, if I could rewrite the book, I would have given the women a larger part because, after all, they're the ones that are actually cooking in it. And I realized after the book came full-blown and printed and bound that they hadn't gotten a big enough part. <laughs> well, I'm sure people will understand that and, and know what it's like to be the cooks. <laughs> I wanted to include a reading from the book on the podcast, and Joanne was kind enough to do that for me. It was recorded on her phone, and I've included it here. The story begins when Benny's mama and papa opened a store on Rivington Street to sell round baked knishes that were five cents apiece. They were so popular, there were lines from the store all the way down the street. But then, right across the street, a sign went up, and Solly Tish's family opened another knishery and they sold Tish's delicious fried square knishes, and they were only four cents. Well, that was the start of the knish war, and the prices kept going down, 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 and Mama was very worried. 
Three cents? Mama worried. We can't keep dropping prices. Our profits will fly out the window. So we'll put up screens, Papa joked. Better yet, I'll close the windows. It's no laughing matter, said Mama. I know, I know, said Papa. He agreed. He was worried too. So he sent Benny outside to drum up some business, and Benny wore a sandwich board that said, Delicious baked knishes, we live by our name. No other knishes taste the same, and the price now was three cents. Well, when Mr. Tish saw Benny, he sent his son Solly out with a sign too. Solly and Benny marched up and down Rivington Street. Solly's sign said, Old World Taste, New World Flavor, Buy Tish's Knishes, Do Yourself a Favor, Three Cents. Now crowds came to both knisheries, but Papa was miserable. That thief, Tish, he's stealing our customers. So what can we do, asked Mama. A raffle, said Papa. We'll give a coupon with every knish for a raffle. Benny, he said, you'll make for me a sign. Write what I say. So what did Mr. Tish do? Of course, he ran a raffle too. Instead of one coupon, he gave two. The raffles worked. People started buying more knishes to get coupons to win dishes. But Papa was still worried about losing customers, so he bought a fancy schmancy piano that Benny played with pedals. When Mr. Tish saw this, he bought a newfangled Victrola with a wind-up crank, so Solly's job was turning the crank to make music. Both Papa and Mr. Tish lowered their prices again. That was Joanne Oppenheim reading from her new book, The Knish Wars on Rivington Street. It was recorded on her iPhone. Thanks so much for listening to The Big Schmear today. I want to give a special shout-out to my radio pal from the days of Western Public Radio, Michael Johnson, who noticed the article about this book in the New York Times and passed along the information to me. Thank you, Michael. Our recording engineer is Malcolm Addy. And this is the Malcolm Addy Studio in New York City. Our editor and mix engineer is Steve Robinson, and our theme music is performed by Cavatina Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. Check out thebigschmear.com to download episodes of the podcast, get a recipe shared by one of my guests, and check out the list of recommended Jewish food restaurants. That's thebigschmear.com. Schmear is spelled S-C-H-M-E-A-R. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening, and happy eating. Mm-hmm.